how far would you go for someone? Uh, that is the question that I put out on the internet. I sort of Googled it. And the first response that I came to uh, was given by this man named Yuri. And uh, here's what he wrote. I thought this was kind of interesting. How far? Like, how far would I go for someone? Let's see. For some people, I would do just about anything for them, being unnaturally loyal and all. But for this one person, I would die for that person. I would betray everyone for this person, and they know it. I would kill for this person, named Hiro Avant Yuri. Yeah, you read that correctly. I would do everything in my power for myself. Now, I appreciate the honesty. I just hope Yuri doesn't live down the street. Uh, but we do know that a lot of people would say something sort of similar because the reality is, I don't know that most people, but there are several people, maybe it's most people, would go to great lengths for themselves. They will journey way outside the boundaries of morality or legality or ethics in order to serve themselves. Uh, a lot of people would serve themselves to the point of, well, all kinds of things as long as other people aren't necessarily uh, aware of it. We are, as the Bible says, and as our experience bears out, relatively, if not extremely, selfish, self-centered, self-serving people. Fortunately, the Christmas story is a lot different, and uh, we come across all kinds of people in the Bible who do travel great lengths, but they don't do it for themselves. They're doing it for Jesus, and you know the Christmas story. There's you know, Mary and Joseph and, of course, the angels that come from heaven and the shepherds and the magi. and Different people travel great lengths for Jesus. And, of course, Jesus uh, traverses quite a distance himself. And then as we think about the Christmas story, we are forced to ask ourselves the question, how far would I go for Jesus? Now, before we press in too far into some self-reflection, Let's just kind of expose the story. Let's look at the examples because we do get examples in the Bible of people who go a great distance for Jesus. And then we see how far Jesus goes for you and for me. And, and then we're going to wrap it up with a little bit of a challenge. How far would you go or at least how far should you go for Jesus? Uh, now let's go ahead and jump into this. Before we press too far, let's just expose ourselves to the story. And we'll start with the simple story of the shepherds. It's rather familiar. It's over in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 18. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. I'll be reading from the King James, just like Jesus did. <laughs> and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped with in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. May God bless or even his word. You may be seated. Uh, Christmas is a really great time, a familiar time where people get warm and cozy and sentimental and, and nostalgic. It's that time of year when we think about, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. How many of y'all have ever smelled chestnuts roasting on an open fire? Have you really? Wow! I've never smelled that smell. I can only imagine what that's like. But we sing about it, we think about it, and we can kind of maybe imagine what that would be like, but I don't have an open fire. Uh, But in spite of the coziness, yeah, there's the coolness. In fact, there's Jack Frost who is trying to give frostbite to every part of your body that's exposed. But that makes us all the more cozy because we retreat into our little cocoons called our homes and our blankets because tis the season to be warm and cozy and nostalgic. In fact, probably adding to some of the nostalgia is the Christmas story that I just read. And no, Jesus really didn't read it in the King James Version, okay? But we like it in that version. You know why? Well, because it's familiar. And sometimes we just, we just want it told in the familiar way because it brings us back. How many of you, when I read the passage, think about maybe children in bathrobes, at, you know, Christmas pageants. You know, it, they, were in the, they were in the same country and, you know, lo, the angels came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were so afraid. And you just go back in your mind, maybe Christ, Christmas pageants that you watched or you participated in as a child. I'm kind of curious, when I, when I read that passage, how many of you thought of Linus? Okay, yeah, like in the, you know, in, in the in Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, and, you know, and, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were so afraid. And Linus is in the center of the stage and he's saying this very familiar childlike voice in the center of the stage, the Christmas story. And it brings us back and it feel, makes us feel warm and, and cozy. And you can almost smell the chestnuts roasting on an open fire and feel Jack Frost nipping at your nose. And if that's your experience, I get you. I'm not trying to pick on you. But I would say we're really kind of missing the point because this is a passage of terror. It's a passage of extraordinary fright. See, these shepherds, they're out in the field, and they're what are they doing out there? Abiding. Somebody in the first service thought I said abiding, and then they chastised me. Abiding, okay? They're abiding in the field. You know what you do when you abide? You're just living, you're hanging out, you're resting. We abide in Christ. You abide in your home. We abide in Christ like we abide like branches in the vine. They're just abiding. They're calm. They're peaceful. They're out in the dark. And then all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And the Bible says they were terrified. They were sore afraid. And that makes it sound kind of, I don't know, sentimental or nostalgic. But sore afraid is a translation of two Greek words kind of piled on top of one another with a very 
common technique in ancient uh, linguistics to emphasize a point where you put two words of the same type right together. There's this word in the Greek for, for fear. It's, it's phobos. It's where we get the word phobia. You know what I'm talking about? Shapen phobia. You know what that is? That's the fear of the opposing team when Baylor's quarterback is passing the, the football. Okay, that's shapen phobia. You're afraid of the other guy. Phobia. Well, here you got phobos or phobeo phobos, like double phobia. What he's saying is if you're trying to literally translate this, they were, fe- they were fearful with a great fear or they, they were terrified in great terror. They're, they're out of their minds with, with fright. You know why? Because, and the Bible communicates this in different ways, the human race likes, finds comfort in the dark. We want to recline as we abide in a, a cozy spot. And then God shows up and the angel shows up and the glory of the Lord shines round about and all of a sudden there's light and there's truth and there's challenge and you know that when you get up, nothing is going to be the same. And that frightens us because there's fear and uncertainty and doubt when you know that when you go on the, over the horizon after you've been directed by God, you're not exactly sure what you're going to encounter because once you've been with God who's great big and mighty and he gives you this great big mighty life-changing word you know things aren't going to be the same and we have a tendency to want to be cozy in the darkness even though we don't necessarily like the darkness at 5 30 feeling like midnight once you get in the dark and you get home and you're cocooning you don't want to get out again i'm telling you you're going to want to be here for the ministry meeting the monthly ministry meeting a week from Monday, and you're going to go home, and it's going to be dark at 5.30, and you're going to remember me saying you're not going to want to get out, and and you're going to feel convicted, and some of you, you're just going to stay there because you're cozy. And I'm telling you, when you think about the monthly ministry meeting a week from Monday, and you don't want to get out, you're in sin. Okay? (laughs) Repent. Get out of the dark. Okay? Now, you're going to remember that. And you're going to fight, you know, internally. Should I come or should I not come? I'm telling you, you need to come. But that's another story altogether. I don't know how I worked that into the sermon. But anyways, <laughs> we have this mentality of, I, I just want to be cozy. I, leave me alone in the dark. God comes. We're filled with fear. And the angel says, don't be afraid. I know God's great big and I'm an angel and everything. And the angel knows that we get frightened and we don't want to be disturbed. And that's why he addresses the emotions right off the bat. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Why? Because there's a message. It's the, you know, glad tidings or good tidings of great joy. It's the word gospel that's used there. And the angel says, listen, you've got to understand the message of Christmas. Because when you understand the message of Christmas or when you, not just when you take in the message, but when the message takes you in, when you get absorbed into Christmas, when you understand the gospel, it'll wipe away your fears. And you better understand the gospel really, really quickly, the angel says, because I've got somewhere that you need to go and you need to do it now. See, whenever there's the reception of the gospel, there's immediate movement. You see that everywhere in every one of the Christmas stories. And this is no exception. They get the message, they understand it, and it says that they went to Bethlehem in haste. And not only do they go to Bethlehem, leaving their sheep out in the field where they'd been abiding, then they immediately go into Bethlehem. Once they get to Bethlehem, they keep moving. 
And they're not just moving around Bethlehem. It says that they take this message abroad. They start sharing with other people the story that was told to them concerning the Christ child that they saw. And and the, the point of this story is God is perfectly comfortable in giving us a message and then expecting in association with the message movement. In every one of the Christmas stories, God is very comfortable in getting people to go somewhere, to travel a distance, and then actually to keep going. You see this not just with the shepherds, you see this in the other stories as well. You, you got the story of, of Mary, right? I mean, that's, that's a stretch. Okay, Mary, you're going to be with child, you're going to be pregnant, you're going to give birth to the son, it's going to be the Messiah. And of course, Mary's having to go places in her mind. Not only that, but she probably escapes for a little while as she's pregnant to go live with you know, her uh, cousin Elizabeth, and so there's some travel there. And then, of course, the Lord comes to Joseph, tells him a similar thing, Mary, Mary, even though things don't look good on the surface of things. And, and so that's a stretch. They're having to travel a distance in terms of their thinking, in terms of their mindset, in terms of their expectations for the future. But on top of all that, literally, together, they have to travel. Together, they've got to go somewhere. Let's go back to Luke chapter 2, a little bit earlier before the shepherd story. Uh, here's what the text tells us. And I'm going to read the uh, Christian Standard Bible here. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, in case you were wondering, Nazareth is about 95 miles, more or less, to Bethlehem, at least according to the routes that were used at the time. And I hear that's sort of a long trip for somebody who's highly pregnant. But God's comfortable with orchestrating things like this. And then, of course, there's the story of the Magi, you know, the wise men who are out in the east and they see the star and then they see the star moving and then they go uh, to where the star was because they came to worship him. You know the story. Well, these wise men from the east, how far did they go? Well, it seems like they were coming from the area of Babylon, from Mesopotamia, and uh, more or less they would have traveled about 1,700 miles, give or take 100 That's a long trip before planes and trains and automobiles and all the rest, right? Now, we can only imagine what that trip was like. You don't have to imagine. Uh, T.S. Eliot has already done that for us. He wrote this little poem, The Journey of the Magi. And I I really like it because he, he imagines really what it would be like and the spiritual nature and the implications of the journey. And we don't often think about how much the Magi were necessarily stretched in the trip. But he tells it from the perspective of this Magi who sees the star and he believes it's going to be associated with some particular happening or event. And so they notice the star moving and the Magi decide to follow the star. And from the get-go, from the outset of the journey, there are these hidden obstacles and unanticipated difficulties that would be entirely appropriate for a spiritual journey. And the reason that T.S. Eliot includes all these obstacles is to help communicate that there... There's a a spiritual dimension to every journey through life. I don't know if you've noticed this, but even in the routine things, you'll notice that there are obstacles and difficulties that you have to overcome that God sometimes puts there. And the reason that they're there is because if you're going to be transformed, it always only comes with difficulty. Most of the time we don't get transformed or shaped or reborn through, you know, ease and comfort and all the rest.
And so you would imagine in a trip like this, 1,700 miles going in, then 1,700 miles going back, uh, that it was a very difficult and in some respects painful journey. You would expect that. Because I'm pretty sure that while God had an agenda for them to see the Christ child and for them to take the news back to their people concerning the Christ child, that the enemy had another agenda. And you see that other agenda in all these other stories, including, you know, Herod, you know, coming to kill all the children. So this was not an ordinary trip. So as T.S. Eliot puts it, you know, they're in this caravan as, you know, wise men, as philosopher kings of sorts. And they're in a caravan, and even the horses and the camels are having a hard time. It's so hard that even the camels are beginning to complain, and their feet hurt, and they lie down in the melting snow, and, and they complain. And then there are people in the caravan who are complaining because it's so long, and what are we doing this for, and where are we going, and why are we doing this? And, and they complain, and there's a bunch of cussing, and, and there's a bunch of demands. If they're going to stay, they better get alcohol and women for hire, otherwise they're leaving. And some of the people in the middle of the night, they run off and leave the wise men, so there are difficulties. And then along the way, they go through these eastern towns with which they're not familiar and they're barbaric and the reception is kind of cold absolutely horrible and they're overcharged for the food and for the accommodations and then they decide we're just going to go on our own and we'll just sleep out in the desert by ourselves and while they're out there in the wilderness by themselves they discover it'd be better off if we slept during the day and travel at night and so their sleep is thrown off and even when they do sleep they got these dreams and in and in the dreams there are the voices that are telling them turn back don't don't go the end is futile and Eventually they get there, and after all these inquiries, they find the Christ child. And as you would imagine, they're moved. They're filled with wonder. But they also recognize that the birth of this child not only introduces a new faith, but it kills all the old religions. And so they have to come to terms with the reality as kind of the spiritual innkeepers of their people that when they return, they have to play a role in reporting concerning the child so as to bring an end to the old faiths. And so the 1,700 miles back is just as arduous as the 1,700 miles coming because they realize that the end of the road is probably their own deaths. That's what's implied in the birth of the Christ child. Now, that's T.S. Eliot. That's imaginative. But could be. Kind of makes sense. We know this much. On a 1,700-mile journey that the Lord sends us on, and it's a round trip, It's going to be a challenge. And God's perfectly fine with that. He's perfectly fine with not telling them everything that they're going to see and all the implications of it. Here's a star. Go. The point in all of this is God is perfectly fine and comfortable with sending you on a long, long trip. God will send us a long, long way for Jesus. He expects you to go a long, long way for Jesus. And that's okay because God also, in Christ, went a long, long way for you. And that's also part of the Christmas story. It's not just about us going to Jesus. It's about Jesus coming to us. And when we say that Jesus went a long way for for us, for you and for me, here's part of what that means. Obviously, he travels a distance from heaven to earth, and we even have songs about this. And I doubt we can overestimate or overstate the distance from leaving the glories of heaven to being born in a stable and placed in a feeding trough and then growing up to be the announcer of the kingdom saying things like, okay, birds have nests and foxes have holes, and uh, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. And Jesus becomes this poor, peripatetic, wandering preacher of the, the good news and the kingdom of God. And 
God the Father is perfectly fine sending his son to a distant country, a far country, after having given up all of his wealth, not so as to squander his wealth and righteous living, but to give up all of his wealth for other people who do want to squander their lives in inappropriate ways. So there's distance. But then there's also kind of the distance from being limitless to entering into all of the limitations of our human condition. See, when we talk about the incarnation as believers, we're not saying that God left his godness behind and then became a human being. Jesus was fully God, fully man. That, that is to say that God experienced our limitations, our weakness, our temptations and all the rest. And you know why he does all of this? He does it to make himself mortal so we can take our place on the cross, but he also makes himself mortal so as to experience every temptation and difficulty that you've ever experienced and I've ever experienced. And he does all of this so that ultimately he can experience in his flesh, in his soul, disgrace and abandonment and judgment so that we get all of the glory and exaltation and joy that was rightfully his. This is what the Bible teaches. I'll just give you a couple of summary statements concerning the incarnation. This is over in Colossians. This is speaking of Jesus and his deity. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus, the passage is telling us, fully God. And Philippians makes it plain that Jesus, though fully God, didn't give up his godness becoming a human being. It's not just that God inhabited a body like a suit of flesh. God fleshed. I don't even really like the word incarnation. This is getting really picky. God carnated. God fleshed. He didn't just put on a human suit, but really he wasn't experiencing any, any real limitations, kind of like undercover boss is still a billionaire even though he's flipping burgers. No, Jesus, fully God, became fully human. He puts it like this. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or kept or exploited or held on to because he was fully God and he could have done that because he was equal to God. He's God. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. What the Bible is teaching is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And we've got to be really careful here because in, in the Greek, there's an imperfect tense that's used in verse 6. And so it doesn't say, well, he was God, but instead became man, or he stopped being God so as to become man. Being God, he became man. Being God, he became flesh. This is God fleshing and entering in to all of the limitations of your humanity and my humanity. And in the process, his deity did not spoil his humanity and his humanity did not, did not overpower. Uh, it, it wasn't overpowered by his deity. Fully God, fully man. Now, that's quite a trip. And he descended not just into our humanity, but he descended into even death, even death on a cross. In fact, he kept going the distance so that he was beaten by his creatures to the point where he didn't even look human anymore, is what the Bible tells us. The point of all of this is, is quite simply, Jesus went the distance for you. 
God could not have gone any further than God went in Christ. There's no way on any level you can conceive of him going any further than he actually did. And what that does is it puts an end to probably the biggest objection to Christianity that there is. And the biggest objection isn't intellectual. And I know all the, I, th- I know a lot of the intellectual objections. The biggest objection people have to Christianity is not really intellectual, it's existential, it's personal. And that is, if I become a Christian, well, that's the end of my life. You know, I mean, you know, it's one thing to be religious and you've got a, a, a religious body or a priest or whatever and they give you services, render religious services like marriages and funerals and rites of passage, you know, like infant baptisms or dedications. And, and it's one thing to, on occasion, you know, bow in, you know, toward the east or say a certain prayer or find some sort of strength for your day or for your week. Everybody needs a little religion to help them on occasion. That's one thing. But people will say, especially if they've read the Bible and know anything about what Jesus is saying, but, you know, Christianity is a little different because Christianity demands radical self-denial. You don't live independently. God calls all the shots. And it's an exercise daily in repentance. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. And I know what that's all about. That hurts. And the Bible says that you've got to put your life on the altar as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God. And day after day, week after week, you are in an active way affirming your own death and denying your pride and putting all your own agenda to death. And even Christians will admit when it comes to the demands of the Bible, like Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect and Don't just love your neighbor as yourself, which we can't do. Love your enemies too. And pray for those who persecute you. And just be like Jesus. Most of us will admit, you know, that's probably, there's probably not enough time in the rest of my life to actually get to that point where I'm going to be doing all these things that I'm required to do. I mean, this is the highest moral code in the history of the world that's ever been conceived. Not just, you know, policing our actions, but actually changing our attitudes and hearts and dispositions so that we actually love with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength our neighbors and our enemies. I don't know that I want to sign up for that. The reality of the incarnation and the story of Christmas is, though, that whole objection comes to an end. I'll explain what I mean by this. Most people are fine with an incarnation that is, I don't know, kind of casual, Y'all remember, you know, hey, God, what if God was one of us? Remember that? Remember that song? I I vaguely remember it. Can, and I don't remember who did this, if it was a skit or what. Maybe it was Michael Myers. I don't know. It was like, what if God was one of us? Blah, 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 blah. Because I couldn't remember all the rest of it. I thought the front end was kind of cute. And so I looked up the story or the lyrics. And I was like, what if God was one of us? This is Joan Osborne, not related to Ozzy. I, I did look that up too. She's, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. It's like, she got nominated for an, you know, like a, what is it, the, an, an Emmy for that song. Like, really? Just a slob like one of us. We'd like to imagine that God's just a slob. He's just hanging out. He's just abiding with us like we're abiding with him. But they ain't no lie. We're just hanging around in the dark, traveling on a bus together. That's the story. 
In fact, there's this one line, and, and I, I, did, I do not have this song memorized, but I saw this is so good. Like, what if God was one of us? Uh, just a slob like one of us. And then there's this bridge of sorts, just trying to make his way home, back, to, back up to heaven all alone. Nobody calling on the phone, except for the Pope, maybe in Rome. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, okay, wait, somebody got paid to write that, you know, I mean, you know, hey, I, I, don't, I hope I'm not inspiring you to like go off and write these weird lyrics or anything, but that's, oh, you know, that, he's just up there, he's trying to get home like everybody else, he's, he's on a bus trying to get home and he's all alone, that's why he's just hanging out with us and that's, that's the incarnation, God just kind of having a good time like Jasmine. Undercover princess in the middle of the square wants to see what normal people are like. It's like, but there's no light. There's just hiddenness and darkness. That is different than what the Bible teaches. Jesus came from heaven so so as to bring us there. And and he wasn't trying to find his way back home. He's trying to find you and trying to find me. and And he limits himself in the journey. The point of all this is, listen, if... All of that was necessary for your salvation and mine. If Jesus actually came and he fleshed, if he did all that he possibly could do, if he went the distance for you and for me in every way imaginable and suffered and died so we wouldn't be judged and we would live, if that all is true, then C.T. Studd puts it like this, if Jesus be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. It's you can't go too far with and for this God. In fact, God should feel absolutely perfectly comfortable in making demands of our lives with all of his light and all of his glory shining around us because he went first. And when you take that message in, it does change everything and it does give God implicit permission to go there on absolutely everything even every square inch of the territory of your heart is dominated by him, and it should be. I love this, uh, love this story. I think it's by Bret Hart. The Luck of uh, Roaring Camp is the name of the story. And uh, this, this camp, Roaring Camp, was the most rough, tough, angry mining camp in all the West. Uh, the, the, the most murders, the most thefts. It was just a horrible place, and it was inhabited entirely by men except for one woman, Cherokee Sal. And Cherokee Sal served all the men of this mining camp. And then Cherokee Sal gave, gave birth to a daughter and died in childbirth. And here's a picture of, uh, of her baby. Do we have, we have that in here? Actually, that's not Cherokee Sal's baby. That's uh, Robin and Mark. Kramers, they, they had a baby like two two weeks ago. I did ask their permission uh, to use this, and we leave it up there. It's a pretty good picture. Her name is Freya. We'll just use her name. And so little Freya is born, and all these men don't know what to do except to take care of her, but they don't know how. And so they put her in a little box, and under the box, this wood box, and under the box they put all these you know rags for her to sleep on, and they said, that just doesn't look right. So one of the men traveled 80 miles to get a rosewood cradle, Brought it back, looked pretty good, but then the rags didn't look right, and so somebody else went to Sacramento and got a, a silk blanket with 
you know, all the frilly things around the edges, the lace and everything. Wrapped up the baby, put her in the, the cradle, and it looked pretty good. And then the man figured, well, that just didn't seem right because look at the floor. The floor's dirty. So these rough and tough guys got down on their rough, tough knees and with their rough, tough hands scrubbed that floor until it was shiny, and then they noticed the walls and the ceiling. They looked terrible too, and then the dirty windows. And So they cleaned the walls, and they cleaned the ceiling, and then they put, you know, curtains over the windows and everything looked just right and but then the men figured we can't cuss fight and brawl because babies need to sleep and all the brawling's going to keep up the baby so they cut that out and then they thought we're going to take this baby and put her at the entrance of the mining shaft because we want to see her coming and going but then when they took the baby and put her out there Everything looked really dirty, and so some people planted flowers, and then this garden grew up, and it looked really nice. And then the guys thought, well, let's just give her some shiny things. And so they'd be down in the mine, and they would they bring up some gold or some, something shiny. They'd give it to the girl. But when they gave it to the girl, they, they saw their hands were all filthy and dirty. And so before you knew it, all of the shops were selling out of soap and shaving kits and perfume and all the rest. And the, that little baby changed the whole temperature of the camp. The, the baby changed everything. And that's kind of the Christmas message. When you understand that God went as far for you as he possibly could because he had to, because you couldn't do it. And when you take that in, it sort of seeps into every crevice. The, the, the good tidings of great joy, you take the gospel, and the natural thing is, then you go. Not out of some cold, hard obligation, but because you anticipate seeing what was announced. And when you see what is announced, you don't have to be told to go any further. You just go further. Because it seeps in. How far do you go for Jesus? How far should you? You, it's, It's not possible to go too far for Jesus. Let's bow forward to prayer. Uh, Lord, I, I think this message is actually really, really simple. And uh, But I also know uh, you have gone further for us than we have for you. And we also look at the examples of others. And, and based on less information, less that they've seen, they still went incredible distances. Whether we're talking about the Magi or the angels, or Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, always your uh, word your announcement, it caused people to move, to hold nothing back. And you were not reluctant to stretch people, to move people, to expect them to go long distances, and especially us, those of us who have not just heard of the birth of Jesus, but have seen him grow up and then take our place. Uh, Help us to respond to you appropriately. And, And thank you, Lord, for the patience the gift that you give us of uh, daily repentance and rethinking things. So the invitation here is uh, just real simple to all of us. Uh, Lord, show us where we're holding back. Help us to uh, reevaluate what we're doing. And as, as we make decisions individually for our lives and together as a church, may holding things back from you or stopping short, may that not be a part of our decision-making equation. As we think about things together as a church, what should we do, what should we not, what should we change, what should we not, as we think about our lives, as we think about our marriages, as we think about our children, as we think about our jobs, 
I pray that we would always think about what more can we do? How much further would you have us to go? And then give us the courage and the conviction to go there. Lord, if there are any here who have not yet received your journey to them, I pray that you would give them the wisdom to acknowledge uh, that you've come, that you've come for them, that you've come at great expense, and that they, they needed you to take that journey. Not only to just come from heaven to earth, but to become a human and then take their place. If there, are any, if there are any here this morning who have yet to acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord, I just pray that right now they would simply say a prayer to you. Just between you and them, God, just lead them to pray. God, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. I know that I need forgiveness. I know that I have not loved others as I have loved myself. I know the inclination of my heart is to put self first. And I know from personal experience that I have violated even my own, not just religious or other people's convictions, I've I've broken my own moral code. I've done things that were wrong, and it wasn't a mistake. I did the wrong knowing it to be wrong because I put myself first. I love me more than anybody else, and I just, I know in my gut that's not love. And so, Lord, I acknowledge that I've fallen short, that I've sinned, that I have a disposition to sin. And I need forgiveness. And so, Lord, I confess now my sin to you. And I trust Jesus as my Savior and Lord, the perfect Lord of love who went the distance for me, that I would be home with Jesus and know Jesus is at home with me. Thank you, God, for saving me, forgiving me of my sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, I want to...